2 Kings chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God, let us hear it. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets that were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, 
lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Let me call your attention in particular to the very specific account of Elijah's departure from this world that's found in verse 11. Notice what it says. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Oh, the time for Elijah's departure from this world had at last come. You could say he had finished his course. He had fought a good fight. He had kept the faith. Interesting to note that in his final days in this world, we're given a glimpse of the activity that he was involved in. He and Elisha were apparently involved in uh, the establishing and the maintenance of these schools of prophets. And we've had occasion to make mention of these schools of prophets, that evidently these were a group of men upon whom the Lord had laid his hand. And we're now, in an Old Testament sense, I suppose, uh, in seminary classes, so to speak. What must it have been like to sit in a classroom, as it were, with someone like Elijah in charge of the class? Oh, these sons of the prophets would certainly learn from a man who had experienced it all, who had known the highs and the lows, of prophetic ministry. So in the verses we've read from 2 Kings 2, we find Elijah and Elisha touring the schools of the sons of the prophets, particularly at Bethel and at Jericho. And it certainly becomes apparent in the narrative that the sons of the prophets were very much aware that Elijah's departure was at hand. How they knew this, we can't say for sure. They evidently knew the secrets of the Lord. And we're told in Psalm 25 and verse 14 that the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. It certainly is the mark of a good school or a good seminary or a good church or a good Christian home that those within that home or that school learn beyond the academics and learn what it really means to fear the Lord, to bow before him in solemn reverence, to be taken up with the greatness of the God that we serve. Now in this final scene of Elijah, we once again see a close association with the prophet and fire. 
Interesting to note that, isn't it? How often you see fire mentioned in connection with this prophet. Here was the one who could call fire down from heaven in his contest with the prophets of Baal. And here's the prophet who could call fire down again, not once but twice, upon those captains with their fifties that would fail to show the Lord's servant the respect that he deserved. It somehow seems appropriate, doesn't it, given such circumstances that when the time came for him to leave this world, the Lord would see fit to send a chariot of fire and horses of fire to bring the prophet home. He stands out, doesn't he, from all others in that respect when it comes to his departure from this world. We don't have an account of anyone else departing from this world the way Elijah did. You would have to go all the way back to Enoch in the book of Genesis to find another character in the Bible who was able, in a sense, to skip death, so to speak. Indeed, you have to go all the way back to the days that preceded the flood. So we read of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 22. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. We're not told in the genitive narrative how God took him. But we are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that he was translated and he did not see death. So we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. So we have Enoch and we have Elijah Two characters in the Old Testament who didn't have to experience death the way every fallen child of Adam has to experience it. We read earlier in the service today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that passage that tells us that there will come a day when an entire generation of those that are alive on the earth at the return of Christ will, after a manner of speaking, escape death as well. But for the most part, every fallen child of Adam has to experience death. But even though Elijah's departure from this world is unlike any other fallen child of Adam, we'll see in the course of our study today that though his departure is different, Christians actually do share a lot in common with him when it comes to their departures from this world. So that's what I want to focus on this morning, the theme of departing from this world, what the Christian shares in common with Elijah in this matter of departing from this world. Think with me, first of all, that we believers, like Elijah, 
The Christian does escape death. The Christian does escape death. Now, it is true, obviously, that we don't escape it the same way Elijah did. The Lord does not send chariots of fire and horses of fire to carry us home to heaven. Notwithstanding such a spectacular and visible departure from this world, we can nevertheless say that the Christian does escape death. So we find Christ saying in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You'll notice here that Christ says this as a present reality. The one who believes in him has everlasting life, not will have it, but does have it. He is passed from death unto life. Listen to what one commentator says on this statement by Christ. This is Albert Barnes now on John chapter 5 and verse 24, he writes, The state of man by nature is represented as death in sin. And he cites here Ephesians 2. And let me just take the time to read those five verses from Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Albert Barnes continues. Religion is the opposite of this death, or is life. Take note of that, okay? Religion is life. I know religion is used in a very uh, different sense than that, but ultimately when we're talking about true religion, that statement holds. Religion is life. The dead regard not anything, so with sinners. They are unmoved with the things of religion. They hear not the voice of God. They see not his loveliness. They care not for his threatenings, but religion is life. The Christian lives with God and feels and acts in the truth that there is God. Religion and its blessings here and hereafter are one and the same. The happiness of heaven is living unto God, being sensible of his presence and glory and power and rejoicing in that. There shall be no more death there, Revelation 21.4. This life or this religion, whether on earth or in heaven, is the same. The joys extended and expanded forever. 
Hence, when a man is converted, it is said that he has everlasting life, not merely shall have, but is already in possession of that life or happiness, which shall be everlasting. It is life begun, expanded, ripening for the skies. He has already entered on his inheritance, that inheritance which is everlasting. Simply put, the Christian has everlasting life. I love the way Paul states this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Do you hear what Paul is saying in those verses? Christ has abolished death. Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And to understand exactly what that means, you have to understand what death is. Death, you see, is separation from God. That's death. Death is not simply the separation of the body from the soul, but death is the separation of body and soul from God. And for the Christian, that separation has been abolished. He walks with God now. He fellowships with Christ now. He has escaped spiritual death now. It can no longer be said of the Christian that he is dead in trespasses and sins. Instead, the saying of Christ is true of him. He has passed from death to life. And even in physical death, where the body is separated from the soul, death, you could say, serves the same function as that fiery chariot did for Elijah, instead of accompanying that soul to everlasting condemnation in hell, death accompanies the Christian soul into heaven, into the very presence of God. I love that text. Christ hath abolished death. Uh, I, th that's a favorite text of mine for a funeral especially because I know the impact it can have on skeptics and critics. Christ hath abolished death. Really? Well, if that's true, why are we here? And why is there a casket in front of us with a dead body in it? And I love to deal with, with uh, the text in light of that. In order to understand what that means, you have to understand what death really is. Death is not simply... Uh, the severing of body from the soul. Death is separation from God. And for a believer, there is no separation from God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
So like Elijah then, the Christian escapes death. Let's follow up on this thought to consider next that like Elijah, the destination of the Christian is heaven. The destination of the Christian is heaven. We're not left in any doubt about this fiery chariot with its horses of fire as to where it took Elijah. Listen again to the words of verse 11. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. His destination is spelled out there most plainly, isn't it? And Elijah's destiny, you might say, becomes a point of emphasis when you read in the verses that follow how the sons of the prophets pleaded with Elijah, or with Elisha rather, to go and search for the body of Elijah. Elisha knew the futility of such a search, but at last he yields to their continual pleas and he goes ahead and sends that company of the sons of the prophets and following three days of searching they return to Elisha at Jericho to report to him that no body has been found and so we read in verse 18 and when they came again to him for he tarried at Jericho he said unto them did I not say unto you go not he knew they were wasting their time he knew where that fiery chariot had taken Elijah, body and soul. Their vain search for the body of Elijah reminds me of the glorious gospel truth that the body of Christ could not be found either, certainly not in the tomb where it had been placed and where it lay for three days and three nights. The discovery of Christ's body could have killed Christianity before it even started. And down through the ages, skeptics have tried in vain to come up with some explanation as to what happened to the body of Christ. I've read the accounts, perhaps you've read some of them too, of brilliant scholars I think of one man, for example, Josh McDowell gives you this example in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he tells the story uh, of one lawyer who had become quite famous, uh, who had written a multi-volume work uh, on what constitutes legal evidence in a court of law. And this lawyer was challenged to take the content of those volumes and apply it to disproving the resurrection of Christ. And he took up the challenge, and he took a leave of uh, absence from his place of employment to devote himself wholly to that challenge. And at the end of his extensive research, he came to the conclusion that Christ is indeed risen from the dead, and that man gained a saving interest in Christ. And that's not the only story of that kind that can be told. In Elijah's case, we're specifically told that he went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and even in Christ's case, he would say to that thief who asked to be remembered 
Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And again the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Heaven, you know, was always Paul's first choice, had he ever actually been given a choice. So he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. You can almost hear Paul heaving a sigh when he goes on then to write, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Can you catch the emotions of Paul in that statement? I'd rather go. I'd rather be with the Lord in heaven. So much better. But if it's the Lord's will for me to stay, well, I do his bidding. I'm, I'm willing to stay. When I visited the Paulson family last week, after learning that Corinne's mom had passed away, I very deliberately included in my scripture readings 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, where Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Peter is making reference here to his experience of being with Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where he beheld this excellent glory. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Oh, the Bible critics and the skeptics and the unbelievers like to view our religion as if it were nothing more than a cunningly devised fable. I love the use that Peter makes of that phrase. It's the opium of the masses, said Karl Marx, a crutch that we lean on when loved ones depart from this world and we are desperate to find something to try to comfort ourselves with. Peter is emphasizing the truth, and this is what I sought to emphasize to the Paulsons when I met with them in their home. This is absolute truth. This is not a cunningly devised fable. This is true and it's real. Christ is risen. Christ is the Savior of sinners. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's not a myth that we use during times that we grieve. It is the absolute truth that Christ came, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended into heaven, that he makes intercession for us, and that he's coming again. The absolute truth of it, 
Not a cunningly devised fable, not a crutch that we lean on when we're sad and downcast or feel that we need a crutch to lean on. Now, Peter and James and John were given a foretaste of heaven when they saw Christ in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and when they heard the voice of God the Father testify to the truth of his Son. And then Peter goes on to write, <coughs> We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Verse 19. We have this more sure word of prophecy. One of the blessings that I've gained over the past number of weeks as I've had the privilege of teaching theology proper to our seminary students is that I've come to realize anew and afresh just how incredible this more sure word of prophecy is. There just is no book like the Bible. There's no other religious book that comes close to matching it in the way it was written by so many different authors from so many different backgrounds, from so many different time periods that all come together to tell the story of redemption from start to finish. There is no, no other book that comes close to teaching us such truths as the truth of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Man could not make that up. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this amazing book is our assurance of heaven if you meet the qualification for heaven. And the qualification for heaven, as Ian Paisley used to say, is your sinnership. Okay? Your recognition of your sins and your belief that Christ is the Savior of sinners. Thank God we have it on His authority, on Christ's authority, that in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's John 14, verses 2 and 3. So like Elijah, the Christian has escaped death. Death has lost its sting where the Christian is concerned. The grave has lost its victory where the Christian is concerned. And like Elijah, we share the same destiny. Just as this fiery chariot from God took him to heaven, so does the Christian soul immediately pass into heaven while his body may await the time of the resurrection. One more comparison I want to make, okay, between us and Elijah. It remains for us to consider that, like Elijah, the details of our departure are ordered by God. The details of our departure are ordered by God. Notice the words of verse 1. 
in our text. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. The text makes it very apparent, doesn't it, that the time of Elijah's departure from this world was a set time. And that set time had arrived. And so can it be argued that when it comes to the Christian's departure from this world, and the unbeliever's departure for that matter, that it is a set time. There was a set time by God when you were born. There has already been a set time when you will depart. That's an appointment you'll keep. Try as you may to try to avoid it, uh, you will not. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Other versions translate the word appointed by the term destined. Man is destined to die once and then the judgment. Now we know, and we've seen this throughout our studies of Elijah, that he was very good about keeping divine appointments. He went to the brook Cherith by divine appointment because the Lord had commanded the ravens to feed him there. His time with the widow of Zarephath was by divine appointment. His appearances before Ahab were by divine appointment. And when it comes to departing from this world, we all, as I say, will keep that divine appointment. There's no escaping it, nor will there be any escaping what follows, which is the judgment. I wonder this morning, are you ready for that appointment? It will surely come. We have the record of it in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see what I mean about an appointment that's impossible to miss? The dead, small and great, stand before God from the least to the greatest, from the least significant to the most prestigious, they're all there, from the least to the greatest, they're judged by their works. Oh, how great will be your need for an advocate on that occasion. Jesus Christ is willing to be that advocate, but you have to call upon him. You have to call upon him before the appointed day of your departure from this world. If you wait until that occasion when you're standing before God on judgment day, it'll be too late by then. No, that's why Paul says, now is the accepted time. 
Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to recognize your need of an advocate. A little bit like saying, I'm going to need a good lawyer. You know, a good lawyer is a good advocate. Christ can and offers to be that advocate. But you have to call on him. You have to see your need for him. So like Elijah, the day of your departure from this world is an appointed day. I would add that the manner of your departure from this world is appointed as well. I said in my introduction that no one has ever departed out of this world the way Elijah did. He was, his was a glorious departure. And even though your departure and my departure may not be like his in a fiery chariot, the manner of your departure is nevertheless just as established as the time of your departure. God has chosen the time. God has chosen the manner in which you will depart from this world. And the Lord does see fit to order different departures for his saints. There are those that simply lie down to rest and wake up in heaven. We all could wish for that, couldn't we? Oh, wouldn't that be nice? But the Lord knows, and the Lord has ordained not necessarily that uh, you will depart from this world on flowery beds of ease, but rather that in your death, and especially does this pertain to Christians, you will bring glory to God. There are others that have to go through deep waters, which are very frightening. Still others depart from this world through being put to death by, because of their faith. They gain the martyr's crown. The Apostle Paul, as well as Peter, fit that bill. I'm reminded of the final scene from Pilgrim's Progress that gives the account of Christian's wife crossing Jordan. This won't be in our Sunday school. Uh, Alan says this part, this was kind of a... Um, a sequel that Bunyan wrote later to give the account of Christian's wife. When Christian and Hopeful crossed over, it was through deep and dark waters with a strong swirling current that caused Christian to think he wouldn't make it, but would be swallowed up by death. He, of course, did make it to heaven's shores, as every Christian does, but not without a great trial to his faith. It's not the same, however, for every Christian. That's why John Bunyan gives the account of Christiana crossing Jordan. He notes how frail and weak she was, but then he says that the Jordan was never so shallow as it appeared when it was her turn to cross over. The Lord knows, and no temptation will come upon you that the Lord will not equip you for. The best preparation you can make for crossing over is to pray in advance of that time that when your time comes, you will glorify God in your death just as you endeavor to glorify him in your life. Oh Lord, let me bring glory to your name when I cross over. 
So you see then that we actually do have a lot in common with Elijah when it comes to departing from this world. You may not depart in a fiery chariot, but that doesn't mean you haven't escaped death as a Christian. As a Christian, you have escaped it. Indeed, Christ has conquered it, and now it serves him. And just as a set time came for Elijah, so has the time been set for you. That day has been foreordained, just as the day of your birth was foreordained, and the manner of your departure and the place of your departure have all been ordained by God, who works everything according to the counsel of his will. What I'm wondering this morning as we close this meeting is this. Are you ready for that set day? Are you prepared to leave this world and stand before Christ? If you've never faced the truth of your sins and what your sins deserve, then you're not ready. If you've never seen yourself as the chief of sinners in need of a Savior the way Paul saw himself, and if you've never called on Christ to be that Savior, then you're not ready. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that you have plenty of time to get ready. You don't know that. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27 and verse 1. Oh, may it not be said of anyone in this little church family of ours that we weren't ready. Thank God there is a way to prepare by calling on Christ and maintaining communion and faith in him. May he be your portion today and in the days to come so that like Elijah, you may be ready for that appointed day. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. Oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we've been dealing with truths today, oh Lord, that are very clear and very plain from thy word. We know, oh Lord, that there is an appointed day we know, O oh Lord, we're not going to live in this world, in our present state, the way we are forever. There is a time when we will have to cross. O oh Lord, I pray, help each one here to be prepared for that day. And may thy spirit continue to speak, O oh Lord, even after the voice of man is silent. And keep these truths impressed upon all that are under the sound of my voice this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.